and welcome to Bread and Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. And I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and who uh, love food history and domestic history and making things that are sometimes historical and sometimes not. <laughs> and um, we like to start usually by talking about what we've been making and or baking recently. Um, so I know you have a fair amount of news. What have you been up to? Yeah, um, I went to the Jorvik Viking Festival last month. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> and I I went on a tablet weaving workshop. Oh, cool. I've always wanted to try that. Which, it was really fun. But I think I would need, I would need help getting it set up if I was to try doing it at home. Okay. Because it's very fiddly and very precise, um, the actual setup part of it, because what direction the threads go through the cards is really important. Oh, yeah, I've heard that. Um, it has to be like perfectly arranged. Yeah, but I mean, it was really fun, and the little bit that I managed to make was pretty. Okay. Ah, exciting! And I also did uh, Trichinopoly, which, if you Google it, you'd get, a, I think it's a cigar brand. Okay. Um, but <laughs> I'm assuming you didn't make cigars. I did not. Um, not very Viking. But <laughs> it's, it's actually a way of making jewellery through weaving wire in actually quite a similar way to how you pass the yarn when you're not bending. Oh, right. Uh, but you do it around a dowel or sometimes around, like you can do it around a bead or something that you want to like cage in the work. Mm. And then when you've got enough of it, you do the really fun bit, which is incredibly satisfying, which is pulling it through a draw plate. Oh. Because it, it really neatens up the stitches and then it also like tightens everything. Okay. So you get this oh. really like I'll I'll post a picture of some of the trichinopoly I did. Um, yeah, whack that up on the Twitter. People will love it. <laughs> pa- patrons have already seen it because I was showing off in the server. <laughs> but it's just it's really pretty, and because you do it kind of a little bit bigger and then put it through a draw plate, it looks mm-hmm. even fiddlier than it actually is. And we love a craft that looks harder than it is. Yes. <laughs> It makes the bragging rights like so much better. Yeah. Um, what kind of things can you make with it? Um, I mean, I made a bracelet and a necklace. Um, but I've seen earrings, especially with with the way of doing it, where you do it around, like a semi precious stone or like a a nice bead or something like that. Uh... But it's basically an anything that you could do either encasing something or making like a strand because it basically if you could use french knitting for it you could probably use null bending for it okay oh wow it's really pretty so cool (laughs) i think i said null bending i meant trichinopoly it's been a busy week (laughs) I feel I've like sent the amount so of... many emails. <laughs> oh no, that's the worst task. 
Well, you know this thing where your job's launching something big, and you're the person that the person that does all of the admin. Oh yeah. I don't know how common of a feeling that is, but that's been my week. <laughs> <laughs> so what what have you been up to? Um, I have not managed to collect any new crafts, I'm afraid. Uh, but between us, I think we've got a pretty long list by now, <laughs> <laughs> especially after the last week. Um, but I have got quite into gardening in the past couple of years. Oh. Um, you can tell I'm about to hit 30 <laughs> and <laughs> so this year I'm attempting to grow some chilies. oh nice and the reason I mentioned this is because um, the season here in the UK is uh, poised to begin for growing stuff or the, I mean it was and then it snowed this week <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad that I didn't actually try and do anything outside yet um, <laughs> but uh, I am, yeah, attempting to grow some uh, cayenne chilies. Nice. Which I haven't done before. I'm very excited about it. Uh, I had to start them in the last week of February because uh, chilies, being not native to the UK, <laughs> if you weren't aware, um, they like. If you weren't aware, you need to listen to the, the Peppers <laughs> <Yeah>. episode. <laughs> Um, they like a, a hot and relatively uh, moist climate, so um, we've got the moisture, but mm-hmm. certainly not the heat this time of year. Um, so they need to be kind of ready to go as soon as it's hot enough to have them outside so that they can have a nice long growing season for the, the fruit to mature. So, so have, that's have you been why. Propagating them then? Uh, like, do you have those little, one of those little trays? Um, I don't, well, I made my own tray out of an old takeaway container. <laughs> nice. Um, so yeah, they're they're in like a little tray on the windowsill at the moment, and I've got some seedlings coming up. It's very exciting. I've only got a few so far, but hopefully a few more might come through. Um, I only need a few plants, but um, yeah, excitement. That is cool. <laughs> Palpable. Uh, <laughs> I will make continuous updates on this process so, yes. uh, we need yeah. we need chili updates yeah i'll have many chilies and i read in one of my mum's gardening books that you can use um chili powder as a um kind of organic pesticide so that makes sense i might i might give that a try as well we'll see um yeah they don't like the spicy dirt will happen <laughs> and hopefully delicious food will be made with homegrown chilies um unless mm. this summer is like a total uh washout but <laughs> i mean there's always a chance <laughs> <laughs> we'll see i also want to get some cucumbers in although i've heard they're quite fiddly but we do have greenhouse um and probably some herbs and Maybe some fun-shaped pumpkins. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's that's what's going on. That counts as making a thing, right? I think I think so. <laughs> Gardening is a craft. 
is, yeah. So we're uh, we're, we're keeping it cottagecore over here. I mean, you are the most cottagecore person I know. People keep telling me that. That's and it's it's <laughs> funny because it's true. I am very much not aesthetic, <laughs> but somehow I am the cottagecore friend. I, th- um, I think it's more your activities. Yeah, like I'm not complaining. It's a nice it's thing to be. It's not just the aesthetic. You just embody it. <laughs> Made of cottage. I think it might be the first time I've ever been doing something before it was cool. Apart from <laughs> sea shanties. <laughs> Are you telling me sea shanties haven't always been cool? Well, I mean, I mean that's certainly... hanging out with the right or the wrong people. <laughs> certainly an argument you can make. <laughs> <laughs> anyway so on that note of uh, wholesome things I I thought following on from uh, the episode I did about the spinning wheel a few episodes ago um, and then we had a rope before that um, so we've talked about those things but we've not yet covered the hand spindle so uh, I hope that our listeners have an appetite for more facts about spinning. I'm sure they do. <laughs> otherwise, they wouldn't be listening to our podcast. Um, but I certainly do. So you're getting, do. you're getting an episode about the hand spindle. I like how often we phrase it like we're just inflicting these episodes on people. I know. Like We do have a fair amount of people who willingly choose to listen to our podcast. So I assume they're as nerdy as we are about like this. People, people give us actual human money. maybe we should like yeah maybe we should be more um less uh, deprecating about our content (laughs) we're we're too british yeah but yes Uh, tell me tell me about spindles yeah anyway so um it's a tool i've been using a lot recently um because I have been traveling a little recently um, and while I like to use my spinning wheel at home, spinning wheels are not that portable. So um, a hand spindle, which is quite small, is uh, absolutely perfect for things like train travel. And it's been really nice. Um, It's really nice to have such a simple tool. It's essentially a stick and a weight on the stick and be able to spin yarn uh, on the move and pick it up and put it down pretty quickly and just, yeah, you can spin and ply on it as well. Um, So you can do the whole process with this little thing that you can just carry around with you and it feels really nice. (laughs) So I've been, um, yeah, just doing a little spinning and um, I've been knitting uh, some headbands which are very sort of small projects to carry around as well and it just feels really nice knitting with my my handspun yarn as well um, so I have a really nice um, alpaca and tussa silk blend at the moment that I'm working with and it's quite fiddly but it's so so nice so soft oh. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah so Uh, As I have explained, the hand spindle is essentially a stick with a weight on it, used for spinning yarn. Uh, 
and um, can be used with many different fibres, so from flax, cotton, wool, uh, metal, um, basically anything that's been used throughout history to make cloth. And it consists of the stick part called the shaft, um, which, and it consists of the stick part, which is called the shaft, um, and the weight, um, which goes onto the shaft, which is called the whirl, which is a fantastic word. That is a good word. Is that because it whirls around? Um... It's no, it's W H O R L. Oh, yeah. So it's whirl, <laughs> which is super fun to pronounce. Um, I'm yeah, I'm not actually sure the etymology of that word, but I like it. Uh, so the, the whirl goes onto the shaft, and that provides your weight that will keep it spinning in midair, um, or in, in a bowl as they're sometimes used. Um, I've so never the, seen that. Yes, I'm going to talk um, in a minute about supported spindles, um, which are fantastic. Um, but the most common type that people might have seen is probably the drop spindle, which is where you're spinning it in mid-air. And as you draft the fibre that you're spinning, the spindle gets closer to the floor. Um, and so it, it drops down. Uh, the shaft of spindles um, for much of history has been made of wood in many cases and so they don't survive as well but the whirls can be made of other materials like ceramic, uh, stone, metal uh, after the invention of metals, uh, bone. Um, I've, I've seen ones uh, on the Portable Antiquity Scheme website that are made of the the cut off um, heads of animal uh, like femurs and things like that. Oh, okay. Not just the cut off heads of animals. No. <laughs> that would be wild. That would be quite metal, I suppose. Um, but I can't, I don't think it'd be very even. <laughs> um, yeah, so because uh, they are, the worlds are often made of these materials, um, they. Um, survive a lot more and many many of these have been found across the globe um, and that's that's one way we know that people are using these um, that's very cool yeah they can be absolutely beautiful they can be decorated there's a spindle whirl in uh, the local collection of my hometown um, there's an early medieval spindle wheel uh, from a saxon site that is made of uh, rock crystal that's been kind of cut and faceted and it's oh, it's absolutely beautiful we're definitely um, going to need a picture of that if i can find one i will put it up on the twitter i don't know if it is sort of like publicly available but uh, i'll have a look but I, I will certainly put up some pictures of um decorated spindle whirls or really pretty ones because they're so beautiful there's one in the in the viking museum in york as well um that was i think it was a carved stone one um it had these really beautiful carvings on it ah um, yes I, I have seen this yeah i'll, I'll try is. and find a picture of that if i can it's very uh, and they can make like i think it's i think with stone ones it's well, kind of hard sorry, to see how 
Like, it's kind of hard to see how intricate the carving is on stone stuff sometimes, but it's... Mm. It's amazing the amount of detail people put into something that is basically just, like, this everyday tool. Yeah, I think that's part of the reason people do it, because these are things people would often be making themselves. They're really easy to make. Um, So why not have your everyday working tool be beautiful if you can make it like that? It, you know, adds it some is, beauty to your life. It is like, there There are times when I appreciate, you know, mass manufacturing and things like that. But mm. everything is, it's so hard to find pretty versions of everyday things. Yeah. And like, I think, why isn't anyone out there making just like a really gorgeous art piece of an iron? Ah, oh, that would be cool. Or, or like a... Like a toothbrush that's just gorgeous. <laughs> you get some fun kids ones, and then adults is just like, here is a white stick. Yeah, I know. Campaign for more beautiful toothbrushes. Anyway, yes. um, <laughs> but yeah, I think it's you know a desire we have to make um, bring some beauty into our everyday kind of monotonous tasks. Uh, because as much as I, a person in the twenty first century, who has the free time to spend on my hobbies, enjoy spinning. Um, I probably wouldn't have enjoyed it so much if I had to do it all winter, basically all the time, in order to contribute to my family's clothing. So, mm. Or, you know, doing it for getting paid pennies to, to spin for a manufacturer. So, um you know why it's I, I think it's a pretty basic desire to just try and add some beauty i mean there are some with um carving carved or sort of written inscriptions that indicate they might have been made by um someone's lover like as a gift for the person who was doing the spinning or by oh, a family like member that. um yeah it's really lovely so i i think we've established that we both have feelings about that <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, I'll mention some um specifically uh decorated ones in a moment so the spindle is one of the oldest tools in the world uh i think i've said this a few times in the podcast but they the use of spindles dates back to at least the neolithic um, so the, the later Stone Age, basically, um, when we are evolving the technology to weave or to, to make cloth, um, then the spindle well comes, uh, the spindle <laughs> comes, um, and that's pretty much across the world, um, in South America, in Asia, in, in Europe, um, it just pretty much everywhere um, we find them and they are one of the the commonest things to find because um, people use them a lot (laughs) and everywhere Um, and it's it's great for me because I like them and I did my dissertation on them and don't think I'm gonna let this episode go by without telling you about my dissertation (laughs) if you hadn't Uh, brought it up I would have honestly (laughs) good it's a cool dissertation 
why would I miss a chance to to work my dissertation into <laughs> this podcast at some point? Um, <laughs> so some of the oldest ones that we have are from uh, Mesopotamia. We do like Mesopotamia on this podcast. We do. Uh, from around 7,000 BC. And those are ceramic ones. So, um, yeah, I, I just from sort of the dawn of textile technology, we have these. Um, and there are particular ones that are quite interesting. So, for example, uh, when I was talking about um, inscriptions, uh, so there's one uh, that was found in Orkney, on the island of Orkney in Scotland, um, which is in the very far north of Scotland, and it's made of limestone. Uh, and it has an inscription in Ogham, which oh. is a Celtic uh, script. And this dates from probably the 8th century. And um, I will show you the inscription. Um, but for anyone who hasn't seen Ogham before, it's kind of like a line with other lines coming across it. Although this one is a circle. So is it it's like a around... Yeah, so this is uh, on the whirl of the spindle, mm -hmm. um, and it's um, not definitely translated, but there's a suggestion that the inscription reads, a blessing on the soul of L. Presumably L is the person who is doing the spinning. I don't know. But it's quite lovely to imagine that you're sort of charging the blessings as you, you spin the spindle. Oh, that's really lovely. Yeah. That's so human. I know! I'm having feelings. <laughs> so much of this is just like the human condition. <laughs> uh, and there's quite a well-known one known as the Salt Fleet Bee Spindle Whirl, uh, found in Lincolnshire in England. Um, and that's inscribed with uh, Viking runes. It dates from the late Viking Age um, period. And the runes in the inscription, um, there's a suggested translation that it's calling on the gods Odin and Heimdall um, to help somebody. And it's, it's kind of unclear, but... Um, that's like, a really... to help them with their spinning or just in general yeah I don't know the second part of the inscription is is not really I haven't been able to see if it's been translated so mm -hmm. I think that might be kind of unclear because um, they don't they don't feel like spinning deities no uh, in fact the specifically spinning deities are the norms or the uh, the fates in Norse culture um, who are the three spinners who uh, kind of have the one of them measures one of them spins the thread of life one of them measures 
the thread and the other one cuts it. Um, so you would think, you know, those would be the go-to, but... Or at least someone, like, associated with crafts in some way. Um, yeah. Um... But then, this is all, uh, this is the problem, this is all assumption, like, the person who is meant to be helped might not be the spinner, it might be somebody else, or... Or it um, might be helping them with something unrelated to spinning. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> who knows? <laughs> um... <laughs> but that one, let me just check, oh, so that one's made of lead, um, which is a fairly That's going to give you some weight. Material. Yes. <laughs> and the weight does tell us something as well, because a heavier wheel will allow you to spin a thicker thread and a lighter one, you can spin a lighter thread. Uh, so it tells us what kind of cloth people are producing as well, or what kind of um, threads and yarns. That's so, interesting, because I would have assumed Yeah, it's really interesting. Like stretching it out more with a heavier one. But then I don't know a lot about spinning. <laughs> well, um, it's, it's kind of all about the, the spin, as it were. So if you have a really light spindle, um, it won't have the weight to it to be able to produce the energy to spin a thick yarn. Because that thicker yarn obviously needs more energy put into it in order to twist it. Um, that makes sense. Yeah, so it will... So a lead weight is for some like chunky wool? Yes, pretty much, because you need a weightier spindle in order for it to keep spinning when you're spinning a thicker wool. If you try it with a thin one, it will just... it will try and spin and then it will just stop and start going back the other way because it hasn't got the weight to it to keep going um with a, a thicker thread um yeah so when i was doing my dissertation <laughs> here it comes um i compared uh spindle whirls uh from the early medieval period um so the i was pretty much looking at um around the the late viking age so the seventh to Eight, seven, eight, eight, ninth century. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so when I did my oh god, <laughs> it's going well. So when I did my dissertation, <laughs> I was looking at uh, spindle whirls from the Viking Age, found in both England and in Scandinavia. And I was comparing those to see if there was any difference in the form of the spindle whirl. Um, and then to see if I could trace the uh, migration of Scandinavian women to Britain during that time. Um, because spinning was in the Norse culture, um, a, a women's task. Um, so I was looking at whether the presence of the Scandinavian spindle whirls in the UK um, or in, in Britain um, would indicate that um, Scandinavian women had migrated along with the um, the Viking armies. 
Um, and um, I mean, the answer was yes, which is not a groundbreaking thing to to find out. Um, um, but it was it was really interesting that um, they were different. So um, I used the Portable Antiquities Scheme, which is a database of finds in Britain. And yeah, um, if you're in the UK, just go onto their website. You can spend hours. Oh, it's great. You can search for the things and for what date that you're interested in. And there are pictures of, of all of those. And oh, it's so good. Um, yeah, so there was a difference. The Saxon type spindle worlds were more kind of donut shaped, whereas the Viking ones were a bit more conical. And um, yeah, and, and some of those types were found in Britain. And the um, when I plotted them out on the map, they correlated with the areas that were known to be under Viking control. Um, surprise, surprise. So yeah, nothing groundbreaking, but it was a really interesting process to go through. Um, and some of the diversity in the weight in the spindle worlds was really interesting because there would be very, very light ones. Um, so like under 10 grams of wow. weight in the world. So those could be used to spin incredibly fine threads, um, which it seemed unusual to me at the time. But now that I think of it, like they were creating quite fine types of cloth at this time. Um, and we know, uh, for example, from um, ancient Greece that they were able to create um, very, very high thread count fabrics. Um, and again, this is a culture that um, was, where spinning was very heavily ingrained in the culture. Um, so, um, so yeah, it's um, quite interesting to, you know, to find the evidence of that. Um, and then there were some, you know, quite heavy ones as well. Um, so, um, being used, I guess, for, for more sort of rougher, coarser fibres um, and coarser kinds of cloth. Getting getting into some technical, <laughs> somewhat somewhat nerdy waters there. It's what um, we're here for. But yeah, super, super interesting. Um, and it's worth noting that um, not just clothing um, was being made at this time, but any cloth you wanted, uh, including the sails of ships, would be made entirely by hand um, using a spindle. So the amount of hours that would go into that, I mean, can you imagine? I, I think I would get RSI just like thinking about spinning <laughs> enough for a sailcloth. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, and interestingly, um, when I was looking at my dissertation, um, some articles about the uh, Viking Age site of Birka in Scandinavia, um, which was a trading area. Um, in fact, I can't for the life of me now remember if it was Birka or Reba, but I think it was Birka. Um, there were there was some evidence um, given the amount of um, spindle worlds and loom weights collected in the same place that there could have been like an early industry in which women might have been employed making cloth so that was really interesting that is, um, like it makes sense 
somewhere that's that busy of a, a trading centre. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess you, you don't really think about people having to make sales. Yes. <laughs> like, they're just a thing that facilitates other stuff moving around. Yeah, and I suppose because it's not associated with the sphere of domestic history or domestic culture, um, but it's something that would have required a lot of work yeah. um, by by people, and and it's a textile, so... Um, yeah, and I, in fact, um, Viking sails were made of wool. I mean, I guess they had a lot of it around. Yes, <laughs> they did. Um, and, it, like, it seems odd because um, wool, when it gets wet, is, is very heavy, but um, apparently they would be treated with a particular sort of solution to weatherproof them. Um, but also because weaving... Um, was done on warp-weighted looms which were vertical and could only weave a certain width of cloth. Uh, there would have to be multiple... Um, uh, what I'm going to put, multiple lengths of cloth uh, sewn together, which is just like, even more amazing. Um, I guess that explains... Like, you get images of stripy sails a lot, and I guess if you're going to sew together... I, I should say I don't know how historically accurate stripy sails are, but they seem to show up a lot in portrayals of that era. And it's like, if you're going to be sewing together strips of cloth anyway, you might as well have some fun with the design. <laughs> yeah, I don't know either, but like that's a perfectly plausible method for for making stripes. Um, it makes a lot of sense. Ah, this is so cool. <laughs> Um, anyway, yeah, so, um, the hand spindle continues to be used throughout history, even after the advent of the spinning wheel during the Middle Ages, um, and even after the Industrial Revolution, in certain parts of the world, certain cultures, the hand spindle is still king. Um, so, I mean, for example, um, this seems like a wild tangent, but I went to an exhibition of photographs uh, by the fairly well-known um, early 20th century photographer Lee Miller. And one of the pictures that I think was taken in the 1930s um, when she went on a trip through Europe, and there's a picture of um, some Romanian peasant ladies spinning um, using a hand spindle and a distaff. Um, so a distaff is a stick, again, essentially, on which you keep your fibre that you're spinning. Um, so if you're spinning quite a lot, then you can wind it onto this stick to keep it sort of tidy and be able to carry it around while you spin. And Oops. the distaff, you can either tuck it under your arm or stick it into your belt, um, or sometimes you just hold it in your hand. Um, yeah, so using this in, in the 20th century. Um, because, you know, for some people and for certain purposes, uh, it's still a really convenient tool. Um, the hand spindle is also still used extensively in certain areas of South America. Um, so, for example, in Peru, there's, there's quite a strong culture of um, spinning on hand spindles, particularly for weaving. Uh, because you can get a very tight spin on a hand spindle 
which makes a more hard wearing weaving yarn. Um, and uh, not every culture has it uh, exclusively associated with women's work either. Uh, for many cultures, it certainly was. Um, so like in ancient Greece, if you were a good woman, you would stay at home and spin um, and produce cloth for your family or to be given as, as gifts um, for political advantage. Um, and there's, uh, yeah, a lot of that sort of in, in ancient Greek art and, and text. Um, but, um, for example, um, in, in several places, um, so for example in the Andes, um, it's not only, although um, many women do, um, often men will be able to spin as well, um, because it's just a really useful skill and it's something that you can do on the move as well while you're walking and, mm -hmm. and sort of get a bit more productivity and um you got to be on that grind ex exactly you got those are uh, revolutions turning <laughs> um and it requires a lot of spinners to supply one weaver so uh spinning is the part of the hand textile production process that takes the most time um so the more hands you've got doing it the more you can produce um in fact i think um i, I did find the calculation that i did a, I did a while ago um so assuming that a skilled textile worker um who is producing a relatively fine uh, thread can spin around 20 meters an hour and the a weaver can weave 70 centimeters give or take a day um, including things like preparing your fiber scouring it setting up the loom things like that mm -hmm. um, it would take about four or five months to make enough cloth for a set of clothing wow if you were doing it all the time so and people wonder why like medieval people didn't have a lot of outfits yeah <laughs> that's the reason that clothing was so expensive and that many um early clothes are made up of rectangles so yeah it is is it's in perspective a little bit hmm so we've got many kinds of spindles being used. I've talked about drop spindles. Um, there are also supported spindles, which I have not yet tried, but I would love to have a go. Um, and that is when you use a spindle where the point rests on the ground or in a bowl. Uh, so the weight of your fibre is not fully taken by the spindle um, and that can allow you to spin differently it can allow you to spin very fine thread because um, the weight is supported um, but you can spin all kinds of thread on a supported spindle um, so cool. some of them have whirls some don't because you don't need a whirl you can just use a stick to spin if you wanted to. 
um, and some of the earlier spindles are just spindle sticks. Um, but yeah, so there are several kinds of supported spindles. Some of them are very large wooden spindles. Um, there are things like uh, a spindle which is commonly used in India to spin cotton um, and can often be made out of metal. It's called, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this entirely correctly, but it's called a uh, takri. Um, and that's a supported spindle um, that works well with shorter fibres like cotton. There is also uh, yep, spindles that don't use a whirl. Um, and there is also what is known as the Turkish spindle. Although when I had a little look, um, although they apparently are widely used in Turkey, um, the origin is probably somewhere in the Middle East um, because that's certainly not the only place they use. Um, but the Turkish spindle um, is a spindle that has, in place of a whirl, it has two crossbars. Um, so what that means is that once you have spun and wound your fibre onto the spindle, you can then take the spindle apart, you can remove the shaft and take out the crossbars, and then you have a really convenient little ball of thread. Don't you have a bog oak one that does that? I do, yes. <laughs> um, just makes these my little turkish. turtles. Yeah, it does. Yeah, the little balls are called turtles. It's really cute. <laughs> um, yeah, my, my turkish spindle is made of bog oak, which is very extra. Um, but I love it. That's the one that I took travelling with me because it's just so miniature and portable sized. Um, it's a really small one for lace weight uh, spinning. So I, I really love it. It um, is. It's adorable. You should post a picture of it. I will. I will do that. I will make a note. Um, yeah, so many different kinds. Um, I would encourage people to go and have a look. Um, if anyone is interested in getting into spinning, especially hand spinning on a, a hand spindle, I would recommend the book uh, Respect the Spindle by Abby Frankemont, um, which is really comprehensive. Um, but uh, yeah, there are, there are many out there as well. That's just the one that I have. Um, or you can just make your own spindle and go on YouTube for free, uh, which is one of the great things about this craft. Um, it's, <laughs> it's just so easy to get into. Um, yeah, uh, and, and the last thing I wanted to say is that in terms of culture, um, being such a ubiquitous tool for most of human history, honestly, um, the spindle shows up in a lot of folklore uh, so, for example, we talked about the Norse fates, the three spinners. Uh, it's in fairy tales, so I mentioned this in the spinning wheel episode in Sleeping Beauty. Uh, originally, what she pricked her finger on wasn't a spinning wheel, it was a spindle. And um, there's also there's a story I particularly like, it's a Russian fairy tale called The Frog Princess. Um, oh, yes. 
Yeah, which involves, is, is very long and <laughs> involves um, a, uh, a, yeah, a, a princess who's been turned into a frog as a result of offending um, some magical creature. And um, she, I'm not going to tell the whole story, but I particularly like the beginning because um, there's a king who has three sons and he decides the best way to get his sons married is to shoot an arrow out of the window of his castle and um, wait for somebody to bring it back. And uh, whoever brings it back, uh, the son has to marry. <laughs> so the first two are, of course, beautiful ladies. And the, um, the person that brings back the third arrow and has to marry the youngest son is a frog. But of course, the frog is a lovely princess in disguise and she has to do all these impossible tasks, which she does because she's magical. Um, and then eventually the prince has to go and rescue her and break the curse. And the way in which he does this is to find the house where she's being held captive. And in that house are a few things um, that he has to do and one of them is to break a spindle which is probably symbolic somehow <laughs> um, and in some versions I've seen it's an arrow instead but I like the spindle um, there's something in there I don't know maybe it's because it's sort of a, a symbol of I suppose domesticity but it can also be a symbol of status like there's there's certain um burials that have spindles as grave goods which you would think is odd because um they are such a commonplace domestic item but they can be a a kind of symbol of being like the female head of household um and yeah so there's yeah, it's, it's an interesting uh, interplay of symbolism. Um, yeah, that's. I'm going to stop there because uh, time is running on, but there is there is so much more you could say about the hand spindle. Um, so if you're interested, please do go have a look. There's just like so many amazing kinds of spindles from all over the world. So many different spinning traditions. Um, and I have I've sort of rambled, rambled my way through it, but there's uh, loads of like articles where you can find out more. Um, there's loads of interesting depictions of spinning throughout history um, that are well worth a look. So go forth and enjoy. So for our local ladder, I, it's going to be a little bit of a short one, but I feel like that's probably a good thing. <laughs> it's probably for the best at this point. Um, I thought I would look at Turkish Delight. Ooh. Is it actually Turkish? Yes. Okay. Um, so this is one where there's a couple of different stories. That's always fun. Which Yeah, we enjoy that. One story is that it was there was a rivalry between the royal chefs in 
the 18th century and a bunch of them had to compete to make the tastiest thing just to impress the sultan <laughs> and the no specifications the... just like the tastiest thing you can possibly make yeah <laughs> um and one of the chefs decided to boil up some sugar cornstarch and uh, rose water and add some nuts and that was Turkish Delight. Mm. Another story which is kind of similar is that the Sultan wanted to to woo his mistresses (laughs) um, who would often squabble and had his chef create something exotic and innovative and delicious. That does sound delightful. Um, Although I think the legend that is the most believable to me is that um, a confectioner from um, Kastamonu in the Anatolian mountains went to Istanbul and started selling them in 1776. A confectioner's name was uh, Bekir Effendi. And yeah, like it's a much, much less impressive story but it's the most likely to be true of the stories, I think, especially because there is actually a painting of him in the Louvre. So, like, this is a person oh, that wow. definitely existed. <laughs> so kind of like a celebrity chef. Yeah. I mean, he invented Turkish Delight. <laughs> that does seem a lot more believable, like the idea that a guy just made it up one day and it sort of caught on. Yeah. Um... So then his son takes over the shop and at one point they have 10 shops in the family. Wow. Um, including two in Egypt, which is quite cool. This is an, an international... Franchise. Franchise, yeah. <laughs> um, and that, that main shop in Istanbul is still run by the family. Oh, wow. Which I think is really cool. I didn't, I didn't expect that. That's incredible. Um, so the main flavours that you would get sort of traditionally in the 1800s are, you know, you get nut ones, rose water ones, things like that. But apparently now you get, you can get things like mint and coffee ones. Oh, wow. And just any flavour that you would think to put into a sweet, um, there's ones with coconut, there's ones like wrapped in nougat with apricot in, um... And, yeah, like, it became at one point this, like, in Britain, because it was this exotic thing, and Britain of especially the 19th century just loved Orientalism. Um, It became, like, this very fashionable thing, Mm -hmm. and you would get individual pieces of Turkish delight wrapped in lace that you would give give someone... um, Again, as as you were wooing them, like it it it's a very like. Oh, we're going to give. I'm going to give you this delicate, exotic thing. <laughs> and it's also full of sugar, which is expensive. <laughs> um, although apparently, like, kind of tying all of the stories together, apparently, um, Effendi's shop was quite popular with the courtesans. Okay. Adds a certain glamour to it. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, there's there's ones that are for tailored to more modern tastes. Like you can get mint chocolate ones and things like that. Mm. But I mean, there's there's a Cadbury's bar, isn't there? That's like chocolate covered Turkish delight. Yeah, I think so. I don't know how I feel about that. That's two sweet things that taste quite different in one. Um, although one that I want to try is apparently in um, Afyon. There's a kind of Turkish delight which has a layer of water buffalo clotted cream and what? coconut shavings. <laughs> that is incredibly specific. It sounds delicious though. Wow. Like, I'm not really into Turkish Delight in general, but I th- mm. think I would want to try that. Yeah. See, so, yeah, I, I don't have a lot about to say about Turkish Delight, but I just... The, the name isn't great, I think. It's just a little bit... It's from Turkey and we like it. But it used to be called in English Lumps of Delight. I feel like that's worse. <laughs> there, is, there is a moment in Dickens's unfinished novel, Edwin Drood, where the title character's fiance Rosa, announces that she wants to go to the Lumps of Delight shop. <laughs> that could certainly mean anything. But she does specify that it's a Turkish sweetmeat. Okay. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> so yeah, the next time you see, you know, you watch The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, you see Edmund Chow and Down, just think, yeah, those are some delightful lumps. <laughs> Following in the footsteps of Turkish courtesans. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's my very brief local ladder. Are we going to have to add the original Turkish Delight Shop to the road trip? Maybe. It's a, a brief stop off in Istanbul. <laughs> um, so yeah, as as mentioned at the beginning, we do have a Patreon, which has access to a Discord where we just natter, mostly. It's just an online craft circle a lot of the time. <laughs> Um, we also have a Twitter, Bread and Thread, um, where we will put pictures of things that we might talk about on the podcast, uh, teasers for upcoming episodes, and we retweet things in the uh, food domestic history world. I did not say what the Patreon was, but predictably it's Bread and Thread, which is also where you can find us on Tumblr. You can indeed. We are bread and thread on pretty much everything, I think. Except for email. If you want to email us, it's breadandthreadpodcast at gmail.com. Yes. It was already taken. It was. But if you uh, have a suggestion uh, for anything you'd like to see covered on the podcast, or if you've want, uh, if you got any extra information that you think would be fun to let us know about anything we've talked about, um, please do give us an email at that address. Or like one person on Tumblr, if you want to ask about cool places to visit in Manchester, you can also message us on Tumblr. (laughs) So, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.